Welcome back to another episode in this series with my guest, Dan Curry. I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by the awesome music project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the awesome music project campaign will go to music and mental health research initiatives. You can find out more about the beautiful awesome music project coffee table book um, in the usual places. It's a book that features stories from amazing Folks, people like astronaut Chris Hatfield and uh, many brilliant musical artists like uh, Michael Bublé and Sarah McLaughlin and many other great artists. You can find out more about it and the foundation by going to theawesomemusicproject.com. We are in our final part of the show here with my guest, Dan Curry. He is an artist, a filmmaker, a martial artist, a musician. Uh, he's been telling us stories about uh times in thailand um barbecued <laughs> field rats uh learning from great masters in martial arts spending time with some legends like Jimi hendrix and uh, george harrison uh playing his music designing er ergonomic uh instruments i mean this is a guy who's lived a very very interesting life uh, we were just talking in the break about how he has done uh, Tai Chi every day and still does it and continues to do it. it. It's a pretty interesting guy with a pretty interesting life. And where I want to go now is to something I had read about uh, Dan earlier on, which was that, uh, Dan, you were commissioned by the King of Thailand to do some pro production design for the Royal Ball. Tell us about First of all, how do you get that commission? Talk us like, let's talk about how that even happened. Well, I heard about a competition and the king wanted a science fiction theme. And there was open competition. People could enter designs and ideas. So I did a bunch of sketches of different things. And there were a list of requirements that you had to designed certain sets, a gaming area, kind of like a carnival games. Uh, one of the sets would be a place for um, uh, a, a famous uh, American band to perform. Mm -hmm. And um, so I signed my name in Thai and I wrote all the, the directions in Thai. Ah. So the judges didn't know I was an American. Right. And astonishingly, I, I won the, won the competition. And when I showed up at the palace, they're they, waiting for a tie bloke. Uh, yeah. They, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Now you're an American. And we chatted a bit and they said, well, you speak the language and you did win. The King likes your work. So, okay. And you have a team of carpenters, you can do whatever you want and don't worry about the budget. So I designed a, uh, a sculpture garden with neon lights and uh, uh, fluorescent lights all in abstract forms that led to a gaming area. Then the, the stage had to support Count Basie's band and I found out how many people they had and how big it had to be. Then there was a dining area that had uh, odd 
abstract kind of science fiction-y looking sculpture made out of light. And then I did a thing with, I took a, a ribbon of thin polished steel and attached it to different cranks on the bottom. So as they turned, it would undulate randomly and I had a ribbon of light hit the top and it would do these kind of ghostly projections in the background. Wow. And the big day came when, when the king was supposed to come and inspect it a few days before the actual event. And I had been learning palace Thai, which is like Elizabethan English, a very formal way oh, to, really? to speak and how you would address the king, how you would interact when you're supposed to talk to him when you're not. And so I was all geared up and it was really exciting. And I'd seen the king go by in Bangkok. He had this beautiful gold Mm -hmm. Duesenberg that he'd drive around in where he sat in the back and the driver was in a separate place in the front that looked yep. like from the 1920s. So he comes out and he was a very slight man. Uh, he was a great king. He was really uh, a benefit to his country. Yeah, the people and, absolutely loved him. Yeah, he uh, deservedly He's so. Adored. He was a really good man. And he was a great musician, by the way. Really? And he, so he comes out and I go through the spiel I'm supposed to do. And he says to me in English, hey, your tie is pretty good, but we can speak English. I was born in Boston. And really, he was born then, in Boston. And then it, he was explaining that he was a musician playing clarinet when his older brother died and he then became king. He was the next in line for the throne. And so I got to walk him around the, the gardens of the palace and point out different things. And he tried out some of the games I'd invented and uh, which were all set in craters like the moon. Yeah. And uh, so then uh, we, my wife and I went to, were invited to the event, which was pretty amazing. So we got to hobnob with the, with the uh, elite, the Illuminati of the uh, <laughs> Thai, Thai community, as well as uh, the international diplomats. And it was a, an amazing experience that, that I will treasure in my memory for, for the rest of my life. How long did you work on that? About three months. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been a massive amount of work. A massive amount of work. But... That is certainly something for the resume. <laughs> it was like, not too many people have got that on their resume. Yeah, I, well, I, I'm sure there's, well, it, yeah, it was pretty unusual. And I was, I think I'm the only American who got to do that, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one thing to have on your, but to be an American and, you know, and of course to, to speak the language. Did you know he was born in Boston? Did you know that beforehand? I had no, no idea. No, that must have been a very cool surprise for you. What was interesting is when only a couple of years ago, when the king had passed away and they do certain rituals with the body for a year and they were preparing for the cremation. It, here in North Hollywood, there's a Thai temple, the Wat Thai, and they had a special event where 5,000 people, everybody had to 
dressed in black, stood on this incredible line, weaving in and out through the grounds of the temple. And we were fed and given water. And when you finally get up, the uh, some artists had built this beautiful pavilion with a wonderful portrait of the king, all made out of silk, but it looked like a Thai palace. Wow. And each attendee was given a flower and a commemorative coin wrapped in a piece of silk. And you would throw the flower in the bin. And then all these bins from Thai temples all around the world, no matter what country they were in, were brought to Bangkok and put on the king's funeral pyre. Amazing. Wow. I mean, that level of majesty, I don't know that that exists anymore. Um, I mean, even the, the king of Thailand now spends most of his time in Switzerland prancing around with his girlfriend doing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. Very different than the king of Thailand in those days. Yeah, he was, uh, King Bumibon was a, a real boon to his country. He would go out to remote villages to open a school and he was a, a classical musician and he composed a lot of famous uh, pieces of music that were a mixture of Thai and Western instruments. Wow. That's, I mean, you know, there's no way in the world we, you know, even those of us who are curious, there's no way in the world most of us would ever even know that. I mean, most people would never know the King of Thailand was born in Boston, but let alone that he was a musician who actually produced, who created music that was a blend of classical and Thai. That's really awesome. You've had some pretty interesting interactions with some pretty interesting people, particularly from that part of the world. Um, you even had an interaction with the, the Dalai Lama, but not in the same way that you did with the King of Thailand. Tell us about that. He wanted to visit the sets of Star Trek. And because I spent time in Asia and my wife is Buddhist, I was elected to be the guide. And when we had a special guest like that, we would light up all the sets so that uh, it would look like you see it on TV because normally if you're not shooting it, the sets are dark. Yeah. And I remember being around this very special being who radi radiated an aura that was almost tangible. And there was the highlight was taking him into the transporter room and he got up on the platform and said, can you be me to Tibet? Did he really? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. How, uh, so you were just guiding him around the whole sets? and Yeah, just show him around the sets. It, 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 normally a PA would do that, but. Uh, sure. But what was the, what, what was your experience of him as a human? Well, it was kind of rushed, but uh, mm. like I said, it, there was a palpable aura about him. And I, I really came to believe that he's the real deal, that right. there's something uh, that a real holy man in the true sense of the word, somebody who is in touch with the non-physical aspect of being a human being that he was 
very comfortable with and that's where he spent his time right and that his mortal relationship with the world was less important than his relationship with that aspect of of being yeah it's interesting um i have a couple of dalai lama stories and one is that uh my brother was a very famous DJ in the UK in a very famous club. And uh, the Dalai Lama was coming to that city, Birmingham in the UK. And, um, and the guys who owned the nightclub went to meet him and they took with them a t-shirt from the nightclub and it's called Money Pennies. And it's the club, you know, it's, it's a silhouette of a naked lady and <laughs> The Dal they gave it to the Dalai Lama and just wanted a photograph and the Dalai Lama put it on over the top of his clothes for them. You know, just like the, the very human side of him yes. and the, the ability to make fun of himself and laugh. Uh, you know, I really love that about him. And we actually had a guest on this show on Curiosity Bites, uh, Dr. James Doty, who is a neuroscientist, neurosurgeon, um, who actually has gotten to know the Dalai Lama very well. And he is very interacted with a lot of the leading religious people in the world. And James is an atheist and he's a fascinating, fascinating human being who meditates every day and has learned all that kind of stuff. But, um, and talked about his time with the Dalai Lama. And he said, you know, they've become friends and he's, he talks about very much about that very human side. Uh, and in my teachings, when I was teaching public seminars, I used to tell a story about how, you know, we, we're all trying to be enlightened, but we're doing it from the Western idea that there's this constant levelness. And I told this story about the Dalai Lama and it talking about losing his temper. And I said, you know, it's a really great example is that it's an evolution every single day. And the Dalai Lama, I think, is one of the great examples of that humanity, not pretending to be perfect. But rather, again, back to what we talked about with art, that mastery, which is constantly evolving, always going to be what is what it what could be next. Pretty cool. When I was living in, in Konkan, Thailand, I had a little house on, on a lake and it was maybe 200 yards from a really beautiful old Buddhist temple. Mm -hmm. And I used to love to go down there and walk in their gardens and I got to know some of the monks and and the abbot was this wonderful old man. And he had a, a, a Western man who was, had become a monk and he was trying to get into meditation and do all that. And the, the abbot taught him that he couldn't be successful until he stopped trying to imagine what enlightenment would be. And he said that this, this guy, I think he was from La Jolla, uh, had <laughs> probably taken acid at some point and had this uh, magnificent experience on the trip. And he kept thinking he could re-experience re that through nature and meditation. And finally, the monk had to teach him that that's not it. And if you can't imagine it, it's impossible to imagine it. So just let it happen. And the more you try to imagine it and strive for that, the more on the wrong path you really are. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, 
my Buddhist teacher used to talk to me about um, the the elusive enlightenment. Um, that that if you pursue enlightenment, it will always be elusive. Uh, right? Perfect. It's the same thing. Elusive enlightenment is that you can, if you pursue it, you can't get it. Um, and and then he talked about the story of it's easy to be a holy man on top of the mountain, and that real real enlightenment is only to be found in the marketplace. And you know, he talked about you need to retreat and you need to study and you need to be with yourself and you need to understand all of those things. But until you bring it to the marketplace, it's not enlightenment. And and I loved that. I mean, I thought that was really wonderful understanding of. And again, it was not about denial. Uh, and I, I think the Western Buddhism is a lot about denial. I'm going to pretend that nothing bothers me. And my Buddhist teacher, there's a story I tell about him. Uh, we were in the temple together meditating, and I'm sitting there meditating with him next to me. And, you know, we're all chanting. And, and But, you know, I'm, I'm a novice, and I'm learning and very curious. And all of a sudden, he gets up, and, you know, one eye opens on me to look and as I look I can see him go over to light a candle and as he goes up to light a candle um, he was actually an Englishman um, and he'd been there for 30 odd years um, but his sleep caught fire <laughs> his sleep caught he leaned too far his sleep caught fire and he went fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and, and I was like you know and nobody bothered nobody nobody batted an eyelid everybody just carried on chanting he put it out, came back, sat down, continued to meditate. And then we went for a walk afterwards. And I was like dying to ask, but it was like trying to be cool, but I couldn't be cool. And then eventually I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta know like, like what happened? I've held you in such esteem and you know, nothing seems to bother you. And then suddenly that happened and you were like, and he said, Oh, he said that happened 20 minutes ago. And I said, yeah, he goes, it's still happening for you. And I said, but, but why did you react so strongly? He goes, because I was present. He goes, this is, the, this is Western Buddhism you're talking about. You think, that we're not, you think that nothing bothers us. That's not what it is. It's that you're fully present with what happens until its energy is depleted. He goes, that's the, and that's when I started to study martial arts. That's when I began to understood, because I couldn't bring myself to understand this what appeared to be a dichotomy between between this incredible peaceful way of being and yet martial arts that could kill you and suddenly realizing it's a being present it's presence in action was yeah, that your think, experience of it yeah i think that that's why i have been so diligent with tai chi it's like every morning i get do this little dance with infinity where I step out of myself and let just try to be and be a, a being of energy, even though um, I do have a body and I move it and I consciously decide what you know, the pattern I'm doing. But it's that, that you, you touch it. You, it you, it's a perfection you can never achieve that you'll always screw up at some point in the, in the, in the dance, you'll, mm. you'll always make a mistake. You'll always be clumsy, but somehow during the course of that, you, you flirt with this uh, sense of 
being the energy being that you really are inside the battery, like a, uh, like a charge inside of a battery. That's, that's who you really are. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's more of that concept of the elusive enlightenment, the elusive mastery. And you're not, you know, you're, I think, I think in the, in a lot of our Western thinking, we're very goal and, and outcome oriented. And, and therefore we only see things as how do I get to the end? Whereas I, I find that in all of my Eastern studies, it was not about that. It was always about this evolving journey in which another piece of me is worn away or polished. So what is worn away is, is doesn't belong with me. And what is polished is often what was underneath that very thing that was not me anyway. And it's just this constant evolution that I find such beauty and grace in. Yeah, it's absolutely true that, and I think, you know, whether you're an atheist or you adhere to a specific religious practice, I think I've come to believe that, that there's another level of existence that is non-corporeal that we all share. And it's like time. Uh, our past and our future are like this. It's like being on a on a zip line, and as you're gliding along, the present is where you are, but the past was always there, and the future will always be there. And it's it's like or being like the needle on a record, and mm -hmm. you might be in one point on on the vinyl record, but the grooves are still on on either side of either ahead or behind of where that needle is and you just glide along it and that's your present awareness but everything else is as as solid as in in time as as a as a, as a dimension as mm -hmm. as if you were standing on a, on a beach do you let me ask you sidebar what do you think happens after we die that's a question i pondered for a long time and I don't think we get issued harps and float on clouds, but, or if we're being punished, you're sent somewhere else and get an accordion. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's good. So you get harps in heaven and accordions in hell. <laughs> the, uh, and pol constant polka music. <laughs> How do you know you're in hell? There's, 24 hour polka music <laughs> the uh uh i i think somehow we uh, our energy leaves our body and whether or not we retain awareness of our personality or not but i don't think we are destroyed i don't think there's nothing i think something is there but just like we can't imagine enlightenment uh no matter what humans have depicted the afterlife to be it's not it it's something else but i have a feeling it's something wonderful you know it's it, it uh, i think a lot of the concepts of of what happens after life is more to do with our fear of our own mortality and so this idea that we die and we hang out with everybody we've loved is really um a, a way to placate our own anxiety about death 
and our, our lack of impact or influence or whatever it might be. Uh, and I've always said that I, I think that I know that's what drove me as a kid uh, to live the life that I've led is this, it is mortality, but it, it's from a different place. It's from the place of, I don't want to live as if I'm dead. Um, and I, I, I find myself struggle with the restraints of life. Um, and like you, that's what put me out on my adventures and, and has done that because I, I, I don't want to be that guy who got a job and lived a life and that's fine for anybody else. I'm not saying it's wrong, but for me, I, I, so I think that in many ways, when we think about life after death, we're really imagining the life in the form that we have it, but with a lot more freedom and niceness, <laughs> maybe, maybe less polka music. Yeah. And a, a, a sort of infinite synergy. Uh, yeah. Maybe our approach to scale changes. Because uh, if you consider the vastness of the universe and the our minuscule presence in it, uh, somehow or other, that scale may change. There's a, a painting that has haunted me since I first became aware of it in art class in college by American artist Ivan Albright. And the painting... The door. The door. It's this door with blistered paint cracked as if it hadn't been maintained for decades and hanging on the door is a crepe. And in past times when there was a death in the family, somebody would hang a crepe on the door it, it, like a bouquet and it would just become desiccated and, and tragic looking. Mm -hmm. and sticking out from the partially open door is a withered hand with the epithelial tissue uh, as rotting parchment. Mm -hmm. And the, the name of the painting is The Door, That Which I Should Have Done, I Did Not Do. Right. And it's the last line in my book. And I'm working on a novel now, uh, being guided by a couple of really wonderful Hollywood screenwriters and I keep thinking about that book and it's loosely based on my experiences in Laos in 1970, uh, very loosely based on them, but I'm using that, that saying that which I should have done, I did not do in the novel as the main character is kind of a projection of myself, but as if, he did what I should have done. <laughs> ah. And what would that be? Be cool. Uh, 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 making uh, less clueless decisions, making decisions based on uh, a truer understanding of, of honorable behavior, uh, based on uh, a clearer understanding empathy toward the situation, understanding how insane uh, we are when we allow our darkest natures to come forth uh, and excusing ourselves for them uh, because of the nature of the circumstances we're in at the moment. 
You know, you brought up this word several times, and, and I actually know uh, that it's a very important word, um, even in the Star Trek universe. Um, but it's a word that I always, it's, there, are many, there are several words that I, in our lexicon of language that I find particularly fascinating. And the reason I find them fascinating is because of their subjectivity. Uh, that what it means to one person can be vastly different to another, but they'll hold to it like with everything they've got. And the word is honor. You brought it up several times. Um, you know, the, the Klingons talk about honor. Um, you know, other cultures have talked a lot about honor. What does honor mean to you? Honor to me means putting aside your self-interest in order to benefit others and really keeping your word at all costs. Uh, something happened to me in the Peace Corps that uh, I was building a little project on a tributary of the Mekong River and the war was going on several hundred yards away on the other side of the river. Mm -hmm. And the group in Laos uh, that were the equivalent of the Viet Cong were the Patet Lao. Yeah. And one day we were breaking for lunch. It was really hot and I was sitting on the porch of this house and the lady of the house grabbed me and said, you must come inside. And I looked down the street and there were several people in black pajamas carrying AK-47s and they were from across the river. Mm -hmm. And I, in order to hide, I climbed up inside the house and wedged myself between the two roofs. There's a, a more pointed upper roof and a lower roof and they overlap by a few feet. Right. So I wedged myself in there and they came looking for me. They heard there was an American there and they thought they could capture me and trade me for somebody down, down the, the line. And that's when I really grasped the understanding of fear and the understanding of honor because not one person in the village let them know where I was. And they, they were taking great risk and they kept their word to me, we'll, we'll keep you safe. I mean, that is a fascinating example of, of that level of honor that, you know, I, it's one thing to say I'm an honorable person, but very few people will ever test that or have it tested in any significant way. And most of them can't even hold their honor in, in a very insignificant way. Most people's honor is about as sturdy as wet tissue, but these people literally put their own lives in danger. I mean, they could have easily been killed if they were found to be protecting an American in those days. Yeah, had they found me, uh, then they were in serious trouble. Yeah. So how is that, how does, how does that play out for you in your life? You know, you, you leave there, 
and you go on with the rest of your life. How does that play out for you? Well, I'm careful what I promise. Mm. And I will only promise what I really think I can accomplish. I'm careful about not bearing false witness against my neighbor. I'm careful about understanding that there are many sides to every story and that I'm not omniscient and my opinion happens to be my opinion and not necessarily fact. And I, I think uh, not pulling sneaky shit behind people's back, uh, uh, doing the best I can, taking uh, any a menial task as seriously as a task for which I can be rewarded with a golden door jam. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I, I think that's what uh, everyday honor, it's like, I don't think, I, I don't, go to church because I think I'm in church. Uh, everywhere is church. You yes. don't need a special building and a special uh, ritual to be uh, respectful and and part of the universe in, in a way that is beyond physicality. That is profound and important. And I, I think we could all learn a lot from that. The uh, the journey has been a very interesting one, Dan. You've definitely done some pretty interesting things and uh, and been involved in some pretty interesting worlds. Uh, and the interesting thing for me to sort of close up on with this episode is in a world that is very often seen as highly unintegral and without much honor that being the world of entertainment hollywood you know and the me too movement and all that kind of stuff that's come out of it you live in that world what's that like you know i um, think that's why i'm not very successful it's uh, i i kind of uh, don't want anything that would necessitate trampling on somebody else to get it mm. Yeah, it it's it it really is very interesting uh, that these like I, I one of the things I always wonder about is the movies that are not made, the stories that are not told. I often wonder about you know like you talked about that that uh, African guitarist, the township guitar guy. Uh, uh, I mean, being incredibly talented, I don't know his name. I'm guessing most people don't know his name. Um, I, I think about the artists that I saw when I traveled in Asia who were able to, you know, take an image from National Geographic and make it into a six foot painting. And it was like, oh, my God, it was incredibly beautiful, you know, and, and you know, they're doing paintings for 10 bucks, uh, you know, artists that no one will ever know. I have a painting in my living room that everybody comments on that is uh, from one of those artists, you know, there's so much, so much talent and, and brilliance in the world that never comes to fruition, never is brought forward because we live in a, <clears throat> in a neo-capitalist world that has 
high priestesses like Anne Rand versus uh, and held in esteem higher than people like the Dalai Lama. Well, it's an interesting world. We also have uh, the mm. culture of celebrity where and people tend to confuse the famous with with the competent um, and uh, they're because someone may be popular on a uh, some television platform and they play a strong character that may not necessarily be who they are and people can even be elected to high office by spouting lines written by other people that make them look important and significant and they they are no more the genuine article than uh, than uh, Patrick Stewart is Captain Picard. Patrick Stewart is a wonderful man. He's Patrick. He's a wonderfully complex, brilliant man, but he's not Captain Picard. Right. Yeah, we believe the characters rather than the characteristics. We believe the characters that are shown to us rather than the characteristics of the human who is in front of us. And I think that we want to. I think that's part of our problem. I think that we want to believe what is given to us. And so we want to see uh, the, the, the great uh, negotiator as the president, but that's a character rather that's than- the real person. It's not the person. And, and the same as those people that invaded uh, Congress, they were, they were pursuing a reality as as fictional as as lost in space they they yeah. decided that a, a truth that reinforced what they chose to believe yes which is manufactured and i think that's why the buddhists are so smart is that they don't let themselves believe that strongly where they they do silly stuff because they know well it's kind of i think it's right but i may it i may not be right yeah i mean it's one of the things i loved about buddhism was the impermanence like i when i say i love it i mean it, i it challenged the hell out of me but the impermanence you know the sand art and then it would just go all that time spent on this beautiful mandalas of sand art and then it would just go and just so that you could learn to let go of your attachment to anything, not because it's wrong to to have anything, but because everything is semi-permanent. And just that that's something that humans have a really hard time being with. And so we attach ourselves to a lot of things that are false. Yeah. Including well, ownership is a, a temporary social convenience. Nobody really owns anything. It's just you are its caretaker for a certain period of time, and then it goes away. In in Thailand, they have a wonderful tradition uh, where they have certain festivals and they carve beautiful artwork and, and paint it, but it's made out of fruit. And wow. if you look at Thai bronzes, a lot of them are based on what could have been made out of fruit in terms of the shapes of wings of mythological creatures and so forth. And it's that same thing that you just brought up, that because it is impermanent, 
it can only have spiritual value because like like a sand painting because the fruit will decay and become yeah. nothing and go back to the earth yeah Dan, we are at the end of the show, my friend. It has been a pleasure and honor having you with us. And uh, I will, I do hope that you'll stay with us to the very end when we sign off. But before we finish, uh, I want to ask you, what do you presently find yourself most curious about? Where does your curiosity drag you these days with your many years of experience in travels and philosophies well, and art i think my curiosity has focused back in on myself and i'm curious about what i can achieve as an artist uh, and what more i can discover and how how good i can become even at this late stage of life as an artist as a writer and and can I really create something of, of lasting value? And I think that's my curiosity is what can I find in myself that's worth sharing with anybody else? Beautiful. Again, mastery is ongoingly getting better, not ongoingly. Oh, I got there and I'm done. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure and honor, my friend. I'm sincerely grateful. Before we finish, please tell our, um, our listeners, our viewers, where they, the name of the book and where they can find it. Okay, the book is on uh, Amazon. Happen to have one right here. Look at that. Uh, and the book is The Artistry of Dan Curry, and it's by Ben Robinson and myself. And Ben is a London-braced writer, wonderful person. We've become really good friends. And a great thank you to the people who have helped do this, uh, editor Andy, Andy Jones and the wonderful book designers at uh, Titan Books. And thank you to uh, Risa Kessler, who uh, from CBS Publishing. The book came into existence when uh, I was on a panel at Comic-Con and Risa happened to be in the audience. And she said, I liked the weird ways you solved visual effects problems and you have a strange sense of humor and uh, and uh, would you like to write a book fabulous that, that's how it came it came about and so uh, it's been well received and uh, people I try to recognize as many people as, as possible but it talks about the evolution of visual effects technology going from motion control miniatures matte paintings and oils to uh, fully CG as we did on on Star Trek Enterprise. Amazing. Dan Curry, artist, musician, special effects guy, Emmy Award winner, superstar. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure and honor. And to you, dear listener, remember you can join in the conversations inside of our Facebook group. Just look for Curiosity Bites. If you want to find out more about our show, you can also go to dovebaron.com. And I highly recommend that you go to, the, to their register and you can subscribe to the show. And you know what? We always need your help. You are important to us. We are deeply grateful for you who uh, rate, review, subscribe, and share the show with others. As you know, it's all about opening minds up and looking at things from a different perspective and remaining deeply curious. So till next time, stay curious, my friends. 
stay curious. This is Dov Barron, DovBaron.com. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>